On the other hand, if they knew that the time was very near, they would become frenzied and excited and neglect their assigned work. In either event, they would not live normal lives. God prefers that we do not know the time of the end, either the date of our own death or the end of the world, that our service may be natural, spontaneous, and orderly. He seeks from us that which is the true fruit of our natures, not that which is excited and motivated by the expectation of immediate reward or punishment. This life is for every person primarily a time of testing for character and achievement. But that test could not be carried out with accuracy if our actions were actuated by the hope of immediate rewards or the fear of immediate punishments, or if we were lulled into an attitude of indifference because of knowledge that the accounting was far away. Far from being told when the day of the Lord is coming, we are specifically told that it will come as a thief in the night, that is, at an unexpected time. The true believer will not be taken unawares, for he will always be ready. The Old Testament did not give the date for the first coming of Christ, nor any clear intimation as to whether it would be soon or in the far distant future. The event was predicted many centuries in advance, and there was an intense interest on the part of the people as to when he would come and what the nature of his kingdom would be. The people expected and longed for the coming of Messiah through the centuries, as Christian believers have expected and longed for his second advent, and doubtless they interpreted many events of Old Testament history as indications that the time was near. But the New Testament simply says concerning his first coming that he came in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4. He came when God's plan was ready. So it will be in regard to his second coming. All calculations of dates are both futile and presumptuous. It is a matter of record that wars, national crises, plagues, disasters, earthquakes, etc. invariably have given fresh interest and zeal toward a new reading of the signs of the times and the new outbreak of date setting. We would observe, however, that these things are not signs of the second coming, but events which continue in more or less profusion and in greater or lesser intensity throughout this entire age. There has not been a decade since the time of Christ when they were not in evidence somewhere. At some times they have been more prominent in Europe and America and less so in Asia. At other times the reverse has been true. In any event, they have nothing to do with the return of Christ. It is interesting and instructive to notice that within the comparatively short span of our own generation, we have seen premillennialists use successively three different sets of signs to prove that the return of Christ is near. At the time of the sudden outbreak of the First World War in 1914, after a prolonged period of peace and tranquility among the major nations of the world, many premillennialists were sure that those catastrophic events proved the end was near. It is hard for us of the present day, who have lived through two world wars and a prolonged period of tension and strain between Russia and the free world, and who have become somewhat callous to such events, to realize the terrific impact that the First World War made on the minds of people, particularly on those who were prophetically inclined. The sensational reports of thousands being slaughtered on the battlefields, the distress of the civilian populations, the destruction of ships at sea, and for the first time in warfare the use of airplanes, submarines, 
tanks and poison gas made it seem that nothing was secure. The second distinct set of times became particularly prominent in the 1920s. The Jews, in increasing numbers, were going back to Palestine. Many thought that the rise of Benito Mussolini in Italy, with his bombastic proclamations about the future glory of the Italian kingdom, and his increasing power through the following years, signaled the restoration of the Roman Empire, which they believed was foretold in Daniel. The popular view among premillennialists was that eventually Mussolini would be revealed as the Antichrist. But with the sudden collapse of his fascist state in World War II and his ignominious demise, we heard no more about Mussolini and his restored Roman Empire. The rapid growth of atheistic communism through this period also was considered a sign of the evil times that were to precede the end. Though the previous signs had failed so completely and were scarcely mentioned any more, how avidly these new signs were seized upon and what a mass of books, articles, sermons, and conference lectures pointed to these as proof that we were in the last days of the Laodicean age. Then came World War II with its still greater destruction on land, on the sea, and in the air, including the spectacular atomic bomb and in 1948 the setting up of the independent nation of Israel in Palestine, which was said by some to be the budding of the fig tree, spoken of in Matthew 24:32. The signs pointed to 40 or even 20 years ago have now been forgotten for the most part and remain only in the books and articles written at those times, most of which seem to have been withdrawn as quietly as possible we may be sure that if the world continues another 20 or 40 years, a still different group of signs, at least different in part, will be put forth as evidence that the end is near. The fact is that each generation of premillennialists discovers signs which to it are convincing and goes on preaching the same doctrine of the nearness of the end. A curious anomaly exists in present-day American premillennialism in that the standard doctrine of dispensationalism, and most premillennialists are dispensationalists, is that the coming of Christ may occur literally at any moment, and that the coming is signless. But while this is the official doctrine, a prominent feature in dispensational writings is the pointing to certain events or conditions which they say indicate that the end is near. Darby opposed the tendency to point to signs, Yet he, as well as others, interpreted certain historical events of his day as meaning that the coming of Christ was near, and probably no other group has been so sure that the return would occur within their lifetime as were the early Plymouth Brethren. Schofield wrote that the interval between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, is the period during which the two great divine secrets, the outcalling of the church, and the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven run their course. And he added, Both seem well nigh complete. A quote in What Do the Prophets Say? Page 143. Dr. Alice quite appropriately points out that one of the clearest indications that dispensationalists do not believe that the rapture is really without a sign, without a time limit, and unrelated to other prophetic events. A quote in Schofield, what do the prophets say, page 97, 
is the fact that they cannot write a book on prophecy without devoting a considerable amount of space to signs that this event must be very near at hand. These signs may be wars, famines, pestilences, the political situation. They may even include tanks and airplanes. Blackstone lists eight signs. A recent writer gives fifteen, that is, Bauman in Light from Bible Prophecy, written in 1940. The discussion of these signs occupies fifty pages, or approximately one-third of the book. Some years ago, L.S. Schaefer published a little book entitled Seven Signs of the Times. In no respect is the inconsistency of dispensationalists more glaringly apparent than in their persistent efforts to discover signs of the nearness of an event which they emphatically declare to be signless. Savage in The Scroll, page 201, appeals to such events but refuses to call them signs. This shows that he recognized the inconsistency of attempting to prove by signs the nearness of an event which is held to be signless. A quote in Prophecy and the Church, page 174, and a footnote. One of the most recent books on this subject, 1956, written by premillennialist George E. Ladd, points out that the dispensational doctrine of the any-moment rapture, that is, that no prophetic events are to take place before the secret coming of Christ to rapture the church is in error because according to their own interpretation of Daniel's 70th week the Jews must be back in Palestine and in position to make a covenant with Antichrist before that can happen. Says he, If this is the correct interpretation of the prophetic future the rapture of the church is not the next event upon the prophetic calendar. It is rather the return of Israel to her land. The rapture of the church is then preceded by a sign, the sign of the fig tree, the sign of Israel. After the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and the destruction of the Jewish state, and after the dissolution of the Roman Empire, the rapture could not take place until Israel was restored to Palestine as a nation, and until there arose another emperor or king who would rule over all Europe. In other words, it would have been impossible for Christ to have returned to rapture the church during the 19th century, or even as late as 1900, when the Turk was ruling Palestine and the Jew was scattered over the earth outside the land. It is therefore quite impossible to imagine the machinery being set in motion to dislodge the Turk, to reverse the course of history and open Palestine to the Jew, to reassemble a few hundred thousand Jews in the land, to forge the national entity of the heterogeneous people, to see an antichrist arise out of the relatively stable European political scene who would dominate the continent and enter into covenant with restored Israel all within a few months. And precisely this would be demanded by a true any-moment theory which would admit that Christ could have returned in 1900. Such a complex of historical events is conceivable in a generation but hardly in a few months. A quote from The Blessed Hope, page 154. In regard to the time of the final coming, Dr. Craig has said, We are told that certain events, such as the preaching of the gospel among all nations, Matthew 24:14, the conversion of the Jews, Romans 11, verses 25 through 27, 
The overthrow of every rulership and every authority and power opposed to Christ, 1 Corinthians 15.24, are to take place before the return of our Lord. It seems clear, therefore, that while the time of our Lord's return is unknown, yet it still lies some distance in the future. Just how far in the future we have no way of knowing. No doubt, if events move as slowly in the future as in the past, the coming of the Lord lies far in the future. In view of the fact, however, that events move so much more swiftly than formerly, so that what formerly was accomplished in centuries is now accomplished in a few years, it is quite possible that the return of Christ lies in the comparatively near future. Whether it comes in the near or remote future as measured in the scale of human lives, we may be certain that it lies in the near future as measured in the scales of God, according to whom a thousand years is as one day. In view of present conditions, however, there seems to be little or nothing in Scripture to warrant the notion that Jesus will return within the lifetime of the present generation. A quote from Jesus as he was and is, page 276. God is in no hurry. His plans span the thousands of years. We find, for instance, that immediately after the fall of man, recorded early in Genesis, God gave a promise of redemption. But he did not provide redemption immediately. Instead, the whole of the Old Testament period intervened, and it was a time of waiting, prophesying, and testifying of that which was to come. How long that period was, we cannot say with accuracy, but it was at very minimum 4,000 years. Think of it, 4,000 years before the coming of the anxiously awaited Messiah. How slow, how awfully slow that must seem to those who want to rush everything through, and who, ever since the first coming of Christ, have had as one of their cardinal tenets his near or imminent return. If God took more than 4,000 years just to make preparation for this great work of redemption, surely now that a redemption of infinite value has been provided, paid for at the cost of the suffering and death of Christ on the cross, who was incarnate deity, surely he will not cut the harvest short. While we cannot say what the secret purpose of God is from the human viewpoint, he is at least free to continue this process indefinitely. Surely he will make very extensive use of this great privilege that now is his and will bring into the kingdom literally billions upon billions of souls redeemed by grace. Those who are so anxious to see the end come and who so enthusiastically preach the imminent return or soon coming of Christ have too small a view of God's purposes. Surely they are glad that he did not come a hundred or a thousand years ago as the premillennialists of those days expected and hoped. For in that event they themselves would have been deprived of the privilege of living. A recent premillennial writer comments on what he terms God's extraordinary reluctance to send Christ in his second coming. Then later in the same article says, Oh how I thank God that Jesus Christ did not come in my lifetime before I was saved. That long suffering meant salvation to every Christian reading this message. If God had come before we were saved, we would have been doomed to the fire and anguish of the great tribulation. Christ will return in his own good time, but for us to be overly anxious for his return is to cut off those who are yet to be converted and all those who are to live in the ages to come.
His coming may be for us as it was for the first century Christians an event of the far distant future. No discussion of the subject of date setting would be complete without reference to some of the more outstanding predictions that have been made throughout the centuries. It obviously is impossible to detail the literally hundreds of such predictions that have been made. Even in the apostolic age, the rumor spread that Christ would return before the apostle John died. Some of the Christians in the church in Thessalonica believed that the coming of the Lord was just at hand and had to be set right by the apostle Paul. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 2 Early church history tells of numerous groups that expected the return of the Lord, some of which set dates. As the year 1000 approached, many believed that the thousand years spoken of in Revelation 20 was nearing completion and that Christ would then come back to conduct the judgment of the world. Many pious but poorly informed people became convinced that it was folly to work for the realization of their earthly needs and ideals. Some sold their homes and lands and made final disposition of their earthly goods and waited for the Lord's return. In the Middle Ages, an Italian monk who was inclined to mysticism and ecstasy, Joachim of Flores, calculated that the 1,260 days mentioned in Daniel and Revelation were to be understood as years, and that the new order under the reign of Christ would begin in the year 1,260. In Bohemia, a forerunner of John Huss, Nellitz by name, fixed the end of the world as falling between 1365 and 1367. Luther was convinced that the rising power of the papacy and the approach of the Turks combined to herald the near return of Christ. It was the common opinion of the reformers that the Pope, as the head of the persecuting and oppressive Roman Catholic Church, was the Antichrist, the man of sin spoken of by Paul. Also in this period, an independent group of Christians with headquarters at Munster, Germany, set up their new Zion in anticipation of the momentary return of Christ as their king. The city of Munster became the center of unrestrained fanaticism and the movement had to be forcibly suppressed by the government. Mother Shipton, in her numerous curious prophecies written early in the 16th century, ventured among other things the prediction that the world to come to an end in 1881. In the 17th century, the 50 monarchy men arose in England as opponents of Cromwell and said that the fifth kingdom prophesied by Daniel was just ready to be set up, which would mean the personal rule of Christ on earth. Isaac Newton set the date as 1715. Later in the 18th century, Emmanuel Swedenborg gave forth with his many special revelations. The famous Greek scholar Bengal, so often quoted by premillennialists, predicted the Lord's return in 1836. Then came the Irvingites, followers of Edward Irving, a Scottish minister of great eloquence preaching in London, with definite predictions of the return of Christ in 1864. Joanna Southcott was in the limelight for some time with her visions and said that Christ would come on October 19, 1884. The French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars with the tyrant, the man of destiny, bestriding Europe and the Near East like a colossus, afforded a field day for the prophecy mongers as they were sure that the Antichrist had come 
and that the return of Christ was very near. The Plymouth Brethren arose in Ireland and England about 1830 with John M. Darby as their most prominent leader, and as we have already had occasion to observe, they placed very strong emphasis on the imminent return of Christ, which they were sure would occur within the lifetime of the generation then living. The most famous example and the greatest excitement occasioned by any millennial prediction occurred in our own country as the result of the preaching of William Miller. Miller was a converted deist and a farmer with but limited education. He began to lecture in New York State in 1831 and took as the foundation text for his theory, Daniel 18, a verse that has tripped up many other self-appointed prophets and which reads, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. On the basis of his calculations, he fixed the date of Christ's second coming at midnight, October 22, 1843. He lectured widely, and his followers, known as Millerites, were thrown into great excitement as the date approached. All who did not believe were to be lost. Property was given away, crops were left to spoil in the fields, and as the hour approached, people climbed to the hilltops and housetops to await the event by which they would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. As midnight approached, bonfires were lighted, and there were scenes of wild confusion. But when the time passed and nothing happened, anticipation turned to disappointment and disgust. Miller acknowledged his error, but concluded that he had miscalculated by a year, and again fixed the date exactly a year later, in 1844. He declared there is no possibility of mistake this time and that all who reject the light will be lost. Again the day passed without regard to Miller's figures. The results were pathetic. Many of his loyal followers were left destitute. Some drifted into other isms of the day or into infidelity. Miller was bitterly disappointed and acknowledged that his calculations had been mistaken. His health gradually failed and he died in 1849. The event had again shown the folly of all such calculations and speculations which attempt to fix the time of the Lord's return. The marvel is that so many believed him. The credulity of his followers was due largely to the positiveness with which he asserted that this was the revelation of the infallible word of God and further because they believed that God had given their group immediate inspiration to understand and interpret the prophecies of the Bible. But out of this movement there developed the Seventh-day Adventist of Ellen G. White as its prophetess, who claimed to have received visions and special inspiration for her writings. This church is strongly premillennial in doctrine, with a one-sided futurism in its preaching and publications. Rutgers makes the following comment on the Millerite downfall. In Miller and his associates we meet with plain, bald, flat-footed chiliism. Chileism, with all its fervor, enthusiasm, and fanaticism, its pessimism, its biblicism, its legalistic, rabbinistic, calculating literalism, its fondness for veiled and obscure portions of prophecy, its preaching of an evangel that subordinates all under one theme, the imminent, fast-approaching advent of our Lord, ending this dispensation and introducing a glorious millennial reign of his saints on earth. 
We should, however, not merely concentrate our criticism against the Millerites, as is commonly the case, because of erroneous dates, but rather seek to point out the underlying principle which accounted for this mistake. And that principle is none other than that on which Chileism of all ages rests, that is, the hard and fast literalism. Modern premillennialists attempt to rid themselves of this unwholesome, grievous burden of the Millerites, holding up these mistaken dates, but let them consider that their principle of interpretation by which they distill a restoration of Israel, of the temple, Old Testament sacrifices, etc., are just as foolish, ridiculous, and erroneous and spring from the same root. All attempts to comprehend eternal realities foreshadowed in metaphoric and symbolic Old Testament prefigurations must fail miserably when a carnal, literal rule of interpretation is applied which clamps into narrow confines of space and time incalculable, infinite mysteries. A quote from Premillennialism in America, pages 91, 92, and 97. Blackstone, in his book, Jesus is Coming, refers to what he terms prophetic periods, which are to precede the rapture and the revelation, and says, An honest and prayerful study of them has given us an assured conviction that they are rapidly drawing to a close. Page 208. He sets forth seven signs of Christ's speedy coming, which are as follows. 1. The prevalence of travel and knowledge. Daniel 12.14 2. Perilous times. 2 Timothy 3.1 3. Spiritualism. 1 Timothy 4.1 4. Apostasy. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 and Revelation 3.14-22 the Laodicean age. Number five, worldwide evangelism, Matthew twenty four, fourteen. Six, rich men, James five, verses one and eight. And seven, Israel, beginning to show signs of national life. When this was written, eighteen seventy eight, Palestine still was a part of the Turkish Empire. How much surer he would have been that the end was very near if he could have seen what we see the present-day nation of Israel with nearly two million inhabitants. Schofield, speaking before the second annual Philadelphia Bible Conference in 1914, shortly after the outbreak of World War I, said, We are certainly near the end. We are in the feet, if not the toes, of the image, Daniel chapter 2, and the last events will be rapidly fulfilled. I am impressed that we are right at the threshold of the complete destruction of Gentile world power, Thank God, it, the Millennial Kingdom, is now very near. Quoted in Bibliotheca Sacra, July-September issue 1950. And to a prophetic conference which met in Philadelphia May 28th through the 30th, 1918, while World War I still was in progress, Schofield sent the following message. To the Philadelphia Conference on the Return of Our Lord, Greetings. I pray that God may guide all your proceedings, especially in the putting forth of a fearless warning that we are in the awful end of the times of the Gentiles, with no hope for humanity except in the personal return of the Lord of glory, and also in a statement of the fundamentals of Christian belief, which may form a clear basis for Christian fellowship in a day of apostasy. Another glaring example of the folly of predicting the time of the Lord's return is found in the preaching of Charles Taze Russell, 
founder of the sect now known as Jehovah's Witnesses. He boldly proclaimed that Christ would return in 1914, but when that year passed without the return of Christ and was marked instead by the outbreak of the First World War, he had the nerve to maintain that Christ had indeed returned, but that he was then in hiding because of the wickedness of the people and that he would eventually show himself. Russell's successor, the so-called Judge Rutherford, continued to preach the near return of Christ and the speedy transformation of the living saints, as indeed the group does to this present day. While the First World War was in progress in December 1917, a group of prominent churchmen, including G. Campbell Morgan, F.B. Mothers, met in London and issued a statement on the significance of the hour which concluded with such statements as the following. 1. That the present crisis points toward the close of the times of the Gentiles. 2. That the revelation of our Lord may be expected at any moment when he will be manifested as evidently to his disciples as on the evening of his resurrection. And 3. That the completed church will be translated to be forever with the Lord. But now, forty years later, and after the world has gone through a second and much worse world war, the Lord still has not come, and that document has long since taken its place along with many others, such in the limbo of forgotten millennial curiosities and follies. A few years ago, Dr. Schaefer spoke of the mighty truth that Christ is to return and that that return is near, and added, The return of Christ is so close that he becomes as one who is at the door. A quote in Bibliotheca Sacra, July-September issue, 1952. It almost seems as if these people think they can hasten the Lord's coming by making such pronouncements. We are reminded that Christ himself said, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or here, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christ, and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect if therefore they say unto you behold he is in the wilderness go not forth behold he is in the inner chambers believe it not Matthew 24 verses 23 through 26 the rule for the detection of false prophets was given early in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22, we read, And if thou say in thy heart, How shall we know the word which Jehovah hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of Jehovah, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which Jehovah hath not spoken. The prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. We do not hesitate to say that this warning has proved true as regards all those who have been so presumptuous as to set dates, either exact or approximate, for the time of the Lord's return. The pity is that many ministers who are known as true conservatives and who are firm believers in the verbal inspiration of the Bible have identified themselves with the most extreme type of dispensationalism and have not hesitated to set exact or approximate dates almost invariably holding that Christ's coming is in the near future. But how different from all this is the attitude of postmillennialism? It does not disturb the church and excite the ridicule of the world with vain and foolish calculations and predictions of times and seasons. 
and it does not profess to know more about the time of the end than did Christ himself when he was on the earth. Briefly we would say of the coming of Christ, don't worry about it and don't worry other people about it. Our duty is to be ready at all times and then to go ahead with the work at hand, knowing that if his coming to the world at large is delayed, his coming for us personally will be in the comparatively near future. Chapter 17, page 342 The Last Days, The Latter Days In the study of prophecy, much confusion has resulted from the failure to recognize that the expressions the last days and the latter days relate not exclusively to the closing calendar days of the present age, but to the entire Christian era. As used in the Old Testament, the expression latter days simply means in later days or in later times and finds its fulfillment largely in that period. For instance, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the latter days. Genesis 49 verse 1 And Balaam's words to Balak, Come, and I will advertise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. Numbers 24.14 In Isaiah chapter 2 verses 2 through 4 and Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 the expression is found in one of the kingdom prophecies which, as we have explained earlier, finds its fulfillment in the later part of the messianic age. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. The fact that we are now in latter days does not necessarily mean that we are near the end of the age. As used in the New Testament, this and similar expressions include the entire messianic era. Paul wrote, But know this, that in the last days grievous times shall come. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 And the context makes it plain that he was speaking of the days then present. For after enumerating the evil things that characterize the grievous times, he admonished Timothy, From these things turn away. Verse 5 on the day of Pentecost, Peter explained the events that were happening as having been prophesied by the prophet Joel, and then proceeded to quote, And it shall be in the last days, saith God. Acts 2, verses 16 and 17. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says, But now once at the end of the ages hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 26. James says, Ye have laid up your treasure in the last days. Chapter 5, verse 3 In enumerating the things that happened to the children of Israel during the wilderness journey, Paul said, Now these things happened unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 Paul and the people to whom he was writing were those upon whom the ends of the ages had come. Peter says that Christ was manifested at the end of the times for your sake. 1 Peter 1.20 And again, the end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter 4 verse 7 Hence these expressions often are used with reference to the entire Christian era. We are in the last days and have been in them for nearly 2,000 years 
and for all we know they may last for many more millenniums before the end comes. They began when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and they continue until the second coming. As this expression is used in the New Testament, it simply distinguishes the days of the Christian era from those that went before, which were the former days. It tells us nothing at all concerning the time of the second advent, whether it is near at hand or in the distant future. The first coming of Christ was the divining line in history. We count time before his coming as B.C. and since his coming as A.D. In other words, the incarnation of Christ introduced the final period in the world's history, the last on the divine program. The consequence of this is well stated by Reverend W.J. Greer. If this present period is the last, then there remains nothing but the eternal state. There is no place for a millennial age between. A quote from the momentous event, page 40. And Dr. Edward J. Young of Westminster Theological Seminary says that the expression in the latter days literally means in the uttermost part of the days and adds that, as used in the Old Testament, concerning the future worship of the people. The phrase tells when this true worship of the Lord will occur. The phrase is eschatological. That is, it has to do with the end of things, the very last part of the days. In the vision of the Old Testament prophets, this was the Messianic age, for the appearance of the Messiah upon the earth was the goal toward which all prophecy pointed. The New Testament shows without the shadow of a doubt that the phrase the last days refers to the age which was ushered in by the appearance of Jesus Christ upon the earth. A quote from Old Testament Prophecy, page 68. In the following paragraph, Dr. Craig has pointed out another consequence of the proper use of these terms. Says he, It has been hastily assumed by many that what is taught concerning the evils that would exist in the latter times or last days, compare 1 Timothy 4 1, 2 Timothy 3 1, 2 Peter 3:33, and Jude 18, means that the days immediately preceding the end will be particularly bad. This, however, is to overlook the fact that these phrases, as used in the New Testament, refer to the whole dispensation of the Spirit, that is, to the whole period between the first and second advents. Compare Acts 2.17 It is illegitimate, therefore, to say that the New Testament teaches that the times will grow worse and worse. Such statements do not necessarily refer to more than the first dates of the latter times or last days. For all that these statements imply, the closing stages of this dispensation may be days in which evil will be completely subjugated. It is only because men have overlooked the technical sense in which these phrases are used in the New Testament that they have supposed that there is any contradiction between the passages in which they are found and such a passage as 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20-28 where the period in which we are living is spoken of as a period of advancing conquest on the part of Christ. A quote from Jesus as he was and is, page 280. The forms of religion as set forth under the Old Covenant were temporary and typical. But Christianity, the religion of the New Covenant, is permanent. God's great work of preparing the world for the coming of Christ was carried out through long ages of time. Then, in the fullness of time, the Messiah came, 
and at great cost to himself accomplished the atonement. What remains now is the harvest period, the gathering of redeemed souls. There is no reason why this period should not be prolonged over a very long period of time during which an incredibly large number of souls should be saved. When Paul says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 He means that this present Christian age and not some future age is the time when God's redemptive work comes to fruition. The present Christian era is the end time and when it terminates there will be no other but only the eternal age. Dr. Warfield says concerning this verse, The period of the preaching of the gospel is the acceptable time in the day of salvation predicted by the prophets. Paul's meaning is not as it has sometimes been strangely misunderstood that the day in which we may find acceptance with God is swiftly passing by, but rather that now at length that promised day of salvation has fully come. Now this time of the preaching of the gospel of reconciliation is by way of eminence the day of salvation. It is not a time in which only a few here and there may be saved while the harvest is delayed. It is the very harvest time itself in which the field is being reaped and the field is the world. He continues, The implication of a declaration like this is of course that God's saving activities have now reached their culmination. There can be nothing beyond this. This implication is present throughout the whole New Testament. It pervades, for instance, the epistle to the Hebrews, the burden of which is that in this dispensation the climax of God's redemptive work has been attained and there is nothing to be hoped for after it. In his Son and the salvation provided in his Son, God has done his utmost. Accordingly, these days of the Son and his word are explicitly designated the end of these days. Hebrews 1 verse 2 A phraseology running through the New Testament in various forms of the end of the times. 1 Peter 1.20 The last days. Acts 2.17 And 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 And James 5 verse 3 2 Peter 3 verse 3 The last time. Judah, the last hour. 1 John 2 verse 18 These last days may themselves terminate in a more pointedly last day, John 6.40 and 11.24, or last time, 1 Peter 1 verse 5. The very last of the last, and just because they are the last, they cannot be succeeded by any day or time or season whatever. They close what is called this world or this age, and are followed only by the world or age to come, which is what we commonly call eternity. In the face of this, it will be hard to maintain that there yet remains another and different dispensation to be lived through before the end comes. A quote in an article, The Gospel and the Second Coming, in the Bible magazine, April issue, 1915. The vastness of the universe an indication of the magnitude of God's plan of redemption. We should like to call attention to another consideration which may help to give some idea of the greatness of God and of the incredibly vast scale on which he works and which surely has some bearing on the scope of his plan of redemption. There is evidence from different sources that this is a very old universe 
and the very old world in which we live. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.